After you've marked hymn number 32, as Brother Harold asked us to do, I would ask that we each be challenged by consideration of the marvelous and blessed things that we've already been presented with today, that we've been granted the disposition and character of health to come together to appreciate good fellowship with Christian brothers and sisters in Christ, but more importantly, to exalt and magnify the name of the great God of heaven. Wasn't it the psalmist of old who, in fact, so beautifully and boldly stated in Psalm 119, verse 103, how good and how sweet are thy words unto my taste. Indeed, God's words are sweet, beautiful unto us as we implant them into our heart and use them to guide our thinking and our way of life day by day. As you can see on the wall to my left, the title that we have selected for the lesson today surrounds the subject and the issue of love. It may well be that as one contemplates and thinks about love, it would be fair to say that few, if any, thoughts and emotions can warm the heart more so than love. In fact, isn't it the case that you and I so often sing about love? There are those who in our world write songs and sing songs, and so many of them utilize and surround the topic and the concept of love. Furthermore, we appreciate that those who write cards try to do so in such a sense that the sentiment expressed within relates to the thoughts of the love that are in the heart. We buy gifts and we exchange them to express our gratitude and our love to someone whom we so deeply cherish and care about. Isn't it also true that even in the world of religion, it is the case that so many will exalt and speak about the nature and character of love, and all the while, they are well aware that the Bible does speak so often about that grand and powerful subject. In fact, as I have noted there on the wall, the screen to my left, well over 300 times the King James Version of the Bible makes use of the very word itself. And isn't it true that that special word charity that Brother Colonel read in our hearing a moment ago is such that that is the translation in the New Testament of that very word love. To think about love then challenges us so deeply. Might I suggest then today that as one thinks about it, many lessons with many specific points might be brought. Our subject will be the motivational character of love, the motivational aspect and features, and thus, as we contemplate that today, might we begin by asking, what does the Bible say about it? To do that, consider these texts with me, please, if you would. The Bible makes no option about the character of love. It places that as an absolute demand upon myself and you. In order to be pleasing to God, we must be individuals to be people who are people of love. In Mark, the 12th chapter, verse number 30, our blessed Savior, not many days at this point prior to His own crucifixion at Calvary's cross, Jesus made this statement in reply to a question asked of Him. He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Those who asked that question had asked a question, What is the greatest commandment? The Lord gave no hesitation. He did not pause to meditate, to read. He knew precisely what the highest element and commandment of the Old Testament Scripture ever was. In fact, that very answer the Lord gave was a direct quotation from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. On that occasion, Moses, that great leader of the ancient Israel, 
made this affirmative statement, quoting from the very nature of God. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy might. When Jesus quoted that, he thus affirmed that that highest commandment of Old Testament is the same as that of the New. Isn't it interesting? The character of love is then a firm part of what you and I must have if we are to be pleasing to God. But doesn't it go deeper than that? For what was the second of the great commandments? Jesus said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He quoted that one from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Yet one more time, the greatest of the commandment embedded and in fact extended the character of love. To very think about these, to ponder the nature of them, itself helps us realize the Lord was teaching then and now that we must be individuals of love. I've listed yet another text for your consideration. As the Apostle Peter gave what you and I sometimes call the Christian graces, that list in 2 Peter 1, he began by saying to give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and Peter what's left, and to brotherly kindness charity. Love. Peter thus noted that those who do invest the effort to add those things to their life will not be disappointed thereafter, for they will be found pleasing, and in verse 11 will be given an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, love is not an option for you and me, is it? It is something that God demands of us. But where does that place love relative to some of the other virtues that one might list or mention? You and I are well aware the Bible lists many, and we've just noted some ourselves. One could list nobility and honesty and patience and consideration of others. But as one talks about love, it's at this point. I would ask that you to note verse 31 of 1 Corinthians 12. You see the church in Corinth found itself in a situation where these matters themselves were of great interest. And as Paul discussed the subject of love, he made this observation, And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. There is something about love that distances it from the reality of these other noble virtues, though they be good and though they be honorable. Paul said there's a more excellent way, and in the next chapter he devotes 13 majestic verses to the discussion of that more excellent way, that way known as love. Over the next few moments today, perhaps you and I can ponder the character of what Paul had to say. What is it about love that is so excellent? And what is it about love that is so motivating? To begin that discussion, or to lead us in that direction, isn't it fair to say that one thing about love that so often goes unheeded and that goes unnoticed is the motivational aspect of it? And that is the subject of the lesson today. Is it the case, for example, that love is merely a mental virtue? Is it merely a mental ascent or a mental thought? According to the Bible, it is not. Love, you see, manifests and motivates to action. Notice these texts. Jesus in John 14, verse 15, in a very simple but powerful means, the Lord said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Let us ponder for a moment what the Lord said. 
Does it then do any good to claim that one loves God, but yet to refuse to do that which he has commanded? The Lord said that person would necessarily be a liar because he absolutely stated a simple logical affirmation. If follows by then, if the premise is met, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Thus Jesus noted that the means by which that love is demonstrated the means by which that testifies of the reality of that love is the obedience to those commandments that the Lord has given. You and I today then can well see that love follows in as much as it produces the motivational nature of obedience. But that isn't all. That same apostle addressed the same point in 1 John 5 verses 2 and 3. If you notice with me the brunt statement that John made there, He noted so easily and powerfully that those who in fact are given of love, those who will follow the way of love, keep or do the commandments of God. Now let's pause to think about that just a moment. That word that's translated in the King James translation is the word keep. But notice in Greek it really means do. Jesus said, in other words there, speaking through John, that those who would love God do His commandments. And thus, we again see that a very similar statement to what the Lord made is there emphasized. It is thus of no avail to claim all the mental ascent in the world to a love of God if that love does not manifest itself in the doing of what God said. We are never at a position or displacement to elevate our thinking, our way, above what God has said. We must do His commandments if we love Him. To note those two thoughts challenges us then to ask, what about my life and what about yours? And by that I mean the following question. Why do I do what I do? And what, why do you do what you do? Why do we as the Pippin Church of Christ in the name of religion do what we do? Perhaps now is the time to ask and answer that. What is the motivation for what we do? We know that there are many things spoken of in the New Testament, many activities, many accomplishments that might well be noted. There is the visitation of those who are sick. There is the taking care of those that are the fatherless and the widows. There are the various other means of aiding in the preaching of the gospel to those who are lost. There's the distribution of kindliness and benevolence to those who are in so such need of it. There's the preaching of the gospel. There's the maintenance of a building. There is a host of other activities that are done in the name of religion. Isn't that true? But then the question comes, why do we do these things? What is the incentive, the motivation for them? Is it that we might have a good name in the community? Is it that others, when they hear my name or yours, might automatically think of what a benevolent and noble soul he or she is? Is it perhaps because we desire the popularity among those who seem to have a noble disposition? Might it be that we prefer to have as lovely a building as possible so that others may comment to us about it? Might it be that we do that simply because we expect later that those same people will benefit me in some material, physical way, as though I'll scratch your back and you'll do the same for me? You see, there are many motivations that one might have, many things that may cross the mind that provide the reason, at least for some, that they do these things. 
But what does the Bible say about that? What ought to be the motivation for any of these good works? For the visiting of those who are ill, or the preaching of the gospel to those that are lost, or the edification of those who are weak? Why is the reason that we fellowship one with another to the mutual encouragement thereof? What's the reason that we maintain a facility for those to come together? Let us remember the church in Corinth wrestled with this very concept that it is to that church that we'll turn for our answer this morning. For Paul gave inspired remarks, inspired commandments relative to this very subject. In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, we encounter a congregation who was in the midst of great difficulties, troubles, and trials. They had misunderstandings, doubts, and misgivings. And what's more, all the while they had allowed those things to corrupt the very worship. They had even corrupted the partaking of the Lord's Supper, believe it or not. Chapter 11, verses 20 to the end of the chapter. But as we come to chapter 12, Paul directly addresses the next subject that rested on their mind, and it was this, the miraculous spiritual gifts of the first century. In verses 7 and following of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul makes note there of nine spiritual gifts that were available and being utilized in that day and time. As he made listing of those spiritual gifts, might we ponder for a moment the character of the problem in the church in Corinth? In fact, consider some of these thoughts with me. The church in Corinth had reached the point that those spiritual gifts, even though they were expressly given for a reason and a purpose, they were being misused and misapplied. In fact, look back with me to a listing of what those spiritual gifts were, just to gain an impressiveness of what they involved. I'll begin reading in verse number 8 of 1 Corinthians 12. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. We have just listed some nine available miraculous spiritual gifts of the first century. And those gifts, notice, were tremendous in their availability. They were utterly remarkable in what could be accomplished. An individual who could speak in tongues, that is, to speak in languages that he or she had never learned, to be able to prophesy, to be able to interpret those tongues as another would speak in them, the gift of miraculously being able to heal someone who was infirmed or sick, the capability of the miraculous character of knowledge, You see, all of those gifts existed in that day. But these individuals in the church in Corinth had come to the point where they perceived that those gifts were to be used for their own personal benefit, their own personal edification, their own personal benefit and gain. In other words, a person who could speak in tongues would in fact use that as an argument against someone else. Well, ha, my gift is better than yours. I can speak in tongues and you can't. Or another would say, I can interpret or I can prophesy, but you can't. These miraculous gifts, even though they were given by God through the agency of the Spirit for the mutual edification and benefit of the church, were used for selfishness and to make for a name oneself. 
How terrible. These great gifts being put to such selfish uses, such selfish use. These gifts, though so great in their availability and capability, were in fact used to divide brethren and to insult one another. Paul took three chapters, three chapters in the inspired word to attempt to convince them that the recognition of these gifts ought to be as follows. Notice with me verse 5 of chapter 14. I would rather that ye all spake with tongues, but rather that ye prophesied. For greater is he that prophesieth than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. Paul, what's the point? The point is the church needs to be edified. The usage of any of these gifts was never to be done for selfish reasons. Never was it to be done out of a sense of gaining popularity or praise for oneself. Notice verse number 12 of the same chapter. Even so ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. Paul wanted them to understand by virtue of inspiration that those gifts were special, they were good, but their purpose was not for selfish reasons. It was not for personal gain. It was not to gain the attention of others for oneself. The motivation for the usage of those spiritual gifts was the edification of the body of Christ. That was to be why they were employed. That was to be the resulting character of their use. Thus, as Paul went through the remainder of that chapter, he emphasized to them over and again, what is your motivation for using these? Is it for yourself or is it for the cause of God? Do you love God enough to use them to save the souls of others? Or are you trying to benefit yourself? As one ponders the character of these motivational aspects, we have seen where they have tended to lead us. Notice the latter part then of the screen I've placed for our consideration. In 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, notice where this fits in light of those texts we mentioned earlier. He had started in chapter 12 by listing those spiritual gifts and affirming the important character of using them correctly. But then in verse 31 of chapter 12, he says, I show unto you a more excellent way. And in the very next verse, he begins to reveal the beauty and the forcefulness of that more excellent way. It's love. And here it is. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Despite the fact of these spiritual gifts, he would soon say the day is coming, those gifts will pass away. We live in an age and in a time now where there are no longer those spiritual gifts. They are forever a part of history. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 and following. But what has remained, Paul? He did say there about a three. Faith, hope, and charity. The greatest is charity, he would say. And now he reveals to us the nature of it. Let's note the, note the text again of verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. If you and I are capable of speaking in some fantastic degree of language or tongue, but if the motivational usage of it is not because of love, what have I gained? What good has it done me? Will it eternally redound to anything for my glorification? Let's note again the words of Paul. He said, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. 
The American Standard renders that in the following words. I am become as a clanging cymbal or a noisy gong. In other words, for my own benefit, I do just as much good as if I'm beating a drum or if I am pounding on something else. Did you notice he even made mention of speaking in the tongues first of men? Our world is filled with various and sundry languages. You and I don't understand, of course, many of them. If someone came in speaking Russian, you and I would just simply have to listen with patience, not knowing anything that he had said. But Paul even noted here, suppose one could speak in the tongues of an angel. You and I may not know all of the language that is spoken in heaven. But Paul, remembering 2 Corinthians 12, did become aware of things that were unutterable. That is, things that were not capable of being spoken. Whatever that language was, Paul said, even if I could speak in that language, if it isn't motivated by love, I am become as a clanging symbol. Isn't that an impressive statement then of how love must be the motivating factor for that which you and I do in proclamation of the gospel? When we, in fact, support preachers who preach in various parts of the world, we do so out of a love for the souls to whom they're preaching. We don't do it to gain a name for ourselves. We don't do that in order for that someone else may pat us on the back, do we? We do that because we love the gospel and we love the Lord and we love the fact that those souls are in need of that gospel. But isn't it also true that verse number 2 goes on to extend our discussion? And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, that's a dramatic degree of faith, isn't it? If you and I, absolute, had full knowledge and understood everything, furthermore, if that was coupled with a faith so strong that we were able to even move a mountain, Paul goes on to say, if love is not what motivates it, if it is done without love, notice he says, I am nothing. Love must be the motivational factor for our works in the name of Christ. It is not, you see, for these other reasons that we made mention of earlier. Those may be side benefits, but they must not be the reasons as to why we do that which we do. We maintain a building. We love to come together because of our love for God and what He has declared, for the mode and act of worship that He's made available, and for the fact that He saved us from a devil's hell by the shed blood of His Son. That love leads us to do His commandments, to keep them as best that we possibly can, to obey fully all the things that He has declared and commanded. What about that third verse? And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, there are few who would question or doubt the sincerity of benevolence, the sincerity of self-sacrifice, and you and I live in a world where that's abundantly seen. Someone may give every penny he's got to build a hospital in some foreign land. He may, in fact, give every cent that he owns in order to perhaps begin an orphanage in a far distant place where it's so desperately needed. We certainly can't insult any such sincerity, might we ask. What's the motivation? Is it that they may praise me? Is it that my name may be on a building somewhere? Or that my name may be on a plaque in some location? If it is not for love, 
Paul again says at the end of verse 3, it profiteth me nothing. You and I can appreciate that the Lord loved us enough to leave the grandness of heaven. And in Philippians, Paul described it in these words, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. No reputation. Jesus was the king of the universe. Everything should bow before him honestly, and yet he willingly forsook that, gave that up to come to this low ground, this planet earth where, in fact, he would be despised and rejected of men. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. This very place where ultimately the psalmist had prophesied he'd be pierced for us. Psalm 34. And isn't it true that as he trudged his way up that old hill near Calvary, that old place carrying on his back as far as possible, the cross, he did that because he loved you and me. The motivational factor in the life of our Lord was the love of all souls, of all men, of all time. And that includes us. The motivation for us then ought to be the same. That we do those things we listed earlier, be it the maintenance of a building or the paying of a preacher or the other acts of benevolence we do, we do that because we want to be like the Lord. We want to love mankind. We want them to come to know the gospel and respond to it. We want as much as possible for their burdens to be lifted here. But more importantly, that they might know the preciousness of eternal life. Jesus did say near the close of Mark 8, in Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, that a man would in fact easily exchange. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? For though a man gain the whole world and lose his own soul, he has come up short. He has come up on the very, very short end of everything. In Revelation chapter 6, near the close of that dramatic chapter, we have a record of the scene when men will call for the rocks and desire for the rocks to fall upon them. But the very last verse of that chapter, verse 17, says, in speaking about the occasion of that day, that when that occasion comes, the rocks won't be of any help. Who shall be able to stand? Those who have stood in this life on the character of the gospel. Those who have obeyed and done what God said. Intentions won't make a lot of difference then. What one intended to do needs to have resulted in what one did. And thus today, what about my life and yours? The motivation of love? Let's be reminded always of God's love for us, the Lord's love for us, and the need of our love for, for our fellow man and the keeping of the commandments of God. In summary, as we ponder the motivation, love is indeed, as discussed, the more excellent way it is that character that rests above both faith and hope. But to say all of it then asks us, why do we do what we do? It needs to be because of love. Do you love the Lord today? If you do, Jesus said you will keep His commandments. Don't let Satan hold you back. Don't let him deter you. He will try every reason, excuse I should say, in the book. He will try today to cause you not to make a public obedience to Christ because he knows that without that you are lost with him. Don't let Satan win that statement. Don't let him win that confrontation. You see, Jesus died for you. If we could be of any assistance in your initial obedience to the gospel today, 
notice that Jesus said, Except you believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He furthermore declared that, Nay, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. He went on to say in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, If ye confess me, not me before men, neither will I confess you before my Father in heaven. We must hear the word, believe upon it, repent of our sins, confess His marvelous name, and then, and then, just as the rejoicing eunuch had come to do somewhat shortly before that, he was baptized. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? If we could assist you in that today, we'd be happy to do it. But if you have become a Christian in days past... You have tasted the Word of God, but you haven't been faithful to it. Perhaps love has ceased to be the motivating factor. Come back to that first love today, just as the church in Laodicea needed to do in Revelation 3, verses 14 to 21. If we could assist you in either of those ways today, we'd be honored and privileged to do that, even now while together we stand and while we sing.